Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad that you have come along today. We have a great show in store for you, and I'm excited to have a guest who I've read for a while and thankful to have him on to talk about a book that's coming out this time of year. So you'll get to hear about that. And one of the key questions that's often used against Christians about the nature of God and how he's revealed in the scriptures, the Old New Testament. So we'll check that out in just a second. I'm thankful that Wesley Biblical Seminary sponsors this podcast where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we do that through a variety of programs from bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees. Um, we have another program too that's available for lay people, kind of like I think almost like an advanced Sunday school sort of uh, course where we take people through every book of the Bible with seminary professors over a nine-month period. It's called the Wesley Institute. We would love for you to look into some of these things. They are available for you at wbs.edu. And we have a polysynchronous mode of learning, which means that we can we have students who are here in person, but also online, and people can take classes asynchronously. People are on live with us. So we would love for you to consider seminary education. Secondly, we're thankful for Bill Roberts, who's a financial planner who comes at that discipline from a Christian perspective, and he's particularly gifted with helping people who are in ministry, uh, who are dealing with things like housing allowances and the like. So we encourage you to check out Bill as you think about planning for your future financially at williamhroberts.com, and you can find a link to him in our show notes. And finally, I have a resource available for folks that is called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. This is just a 45-minute teaching that I offer that we do normally kind of across a semester uh, in a preaching class. But nevertheless, it's something that we use to help people get deeper in the scripture, but then also think about how they present that in an effective way. It's an eight-page document. So there's a 45-minute teaching and eight-page document that you can get if you sign up for my email list at andymillerthe3rd.com. That's andymillerii.com. Well, we are delighted to welcome into today's podcast a, a speaker that we've wanted to have on for a long time, Dr. Paul Copan, who is the Pledger Family Chair of Philosophy and Ethics, and he teaches in the uh, Master of Arts in Philosophy of Religion program at Palm Beach Atlantic University. Uh, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Andy. Great to be on. Yeah, I'm really intrigued. Now, I've, I've known about your book, Is God a Moral Monster, for a while, long time now. But this new book that you have coming out, I believe, this October, mm -hmm. is kind of a, a sequel to that. Or is it a prequel? I don't know. Uh, tell us about this new book that you have. Yeah, it's uh, basically building on uh, two other books, as you mentioned, uh, Is God a Moral Monster? And my co-authored book with Matthew Flanagan, uh, Did God Really Command Genocide? Uh, so this one is God a Vindictive Bully. And again, the spoiler alert, uh, the answer to all three of those questions is no. Okay. And so, uh, so the Vindictive uh, Bully uh, actually comes from Richard Dawkins' statement about the God of the Old Testament being a vindictive bully. So I unpack the charges uh, that are leveled against the God of the Old Testament, and I do so in the context of uh, comparing the portrayals of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there are some uh, scholars uh, who are inclined to see the God of the New Testament as kind, loving, uh, and so right, forth. Right. The God of the Old Testament as being cruel and vindictive and severe. And so what I want to do is show, one, that the God of the Old Testament is uh, kind, loving, patient, uh, and so forth, and that we also see severity 
and harshness in the New Testament. Paul says in Romans eleven twenty two, behold, the kindness and severity of God. We see both of those carrying over uh, across the Testaments. And we see that Jesus, for example, is one who, on the one hand, is, uh, you know, won't, uh, you know, won't break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick, but he also will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, so you see both right. of those contrasts. Uh, you know, Jesus is the good shepherd, but we also see the wrath of the lamb uh, yes. in the book of Revelation. And so I want to, so I'm pushing back in against two, uh, against two forces, as it were. Uh, I talked about critics from without, that is people like Richard Dawkins, other atheists who say that the God of the Bible and Old Testament in particular is, is severe and harsh. And I want to say, well, there's there's patience, there's kindness, there's uh, there's uh, waiting a long time to bring judgment, uh, right. and then for those who are I call them critics from within, people like Greg Boyd and others who uh, who say that God could not do anything severe or harsh. God is loving, God is kind, and we see Jesus uh, on the cross as uh, ultimately picturing uh, the heart of God. Uh, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. What I want to say is, well, there's also a severity to Jesus, uh, and that we need to remember that the there's a balance picture here. Uh, yeah. Jesus, uh, So Jesus is bringing uh, judgment. He can be severe, uh, also kind and compassionate for those who are repentant. Uh, so, so that's the sort of balance that I want to strike. And so I deal with new issues, Elisha and the Bears, the imprecatory Psalms. Uh, I revisit women, uh, slavery or servitude and warfare, but also dealing with a host of other issues as well. So I'm trying to avoid repeating as much as possible. And, uh, and so jumping in with a whole host of topics. Wow, this is really covers a, a wide ground. And it's a, now I'm sadly, I'm really thankful Bat Baker is going to send me a copy of this book. And I'm really excited, but I was only able to read a, the first couple chapters, but I've seen the outline and description for everything else that you're covering. But that was enough to get my interest. And I'm so fascinated by this idea that uh, the way that you're balancing this, you're not just hitting the question with related to like the Old Testament and New Testament. Like you, like you just highlighted, there's both sides, there's more to the story. So to speak in both covenants at this at the same time there's this piece i want to i want to get right to the challenges from without and within right. now that that i didn't expect to see that in this so within you 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 mentioned a, a one person but you also have peter ends andy stanley you deal with all these mm -hmm. folks right um what talk to me about that distinction and why right. is it important for us to think about those the challenges from within yeah well, I think that there are claims being made by you know, people like Andy Stanley and others who say that the Old Testament needs to be unhitched from the New. Yes. And of course, when you read the New Testament, they're not trying to unhitch uh, from uh -huh. the Old Testament. They are quoting it. They are saying this is that Jesus is fulfilling it and so forth. They're affirming uh, things from the Old Testament that some of these critics from within, you know, I mentioned Greg Boyd, uh, yes, Eric Seibert is another, he's an Old Testament scholar. But uh, there is a common distinction that they may make between the actual God and yeah. the textual God. And right. so here's an example of what, you know, what they mean by the textual God is that when it says in the Old Testament, thus says the Lord, those, you know, Greg Boyd and Eric Seibert might say, hold on a minute, that may not be the Lord. It may oh, be Moses or Joshua who are misinterpreting 
what the Lord intends. And so they are actually giving their own fallen, ancient Near Eastern, violence-prone worldview that is superimposed on what God desires. And so that what they might say, and, and Greg Boyd says this, what seems to be you know, God ordained and God blessed in the Old Testament, when you look at it from the lens of Jesus, it actually turns out to be demonic. Mm. That mm. Those are the sorts of things you see. So the actual God, as I mentioned, is, say, Jesus from the cross who expresses, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, that this expresses the heart of God. And I would agree to some extent that, yes, the heart of God is love, but it's not to be contrasted with wrath as though this is somehow opposed to the character of God, but God's wrath, and we could maybe substitute his, his passionate concern, is aroused when people are dehumanized, when there is violence, when the image of God is uh, is being uh, is being damp is being harmed uh, in in people, and so this is the sort of thing that I want to call to people's attention that God is not wrathful in spite of His love, but wrathful because He wow. is love, and yeah. so uh, so rather so I want to pit those against each other. And so what I do in this book is I consecutively work through some of the claims that somebody like Greg Boyd makes. And he says, this is the textual God, this is a textual God, uh, this is what the, uh, the actual God does or says. And what I do is I show how from other scriptures, in the New Testament especially, that these actually coincide, that they're not to be pitted against each other, but the New Testament bears out how the the actual God is the one who is saying these things that are harsh and that, uh, you know, so for example, the imprecatory psalms, you know, some of right, these right, harsh right. sounding right, psalms, right. the psalms that have a little, you know, you know, or a lot of bite to them, uh, praying for God to bring judgment upon the certain persons who are doing uh, terrible harm and so on. And Greg Boyd says, well, for the Christian, the we, inter we understand this as being anti-gospel. We should not curse, but we should bless others. Well, yes, in the New Testament, we see more emphasis on blessing than curse or call for judgment. But it's not as though that's eradicated. Uh, we have Jesus talking about in, in Matthew 18, 6, that it'd be better for someone to have a millstone hang, hung around his neck and, and he'd be drowned right. in the depths of the sea if he leads one of these little ones astray. Or the, the redeemed martyrs in Revelation 6 calling for God, calling on God, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood that has been shed uh, on the earth? Uh, you have you, you have all sorts of representations of judgment. In fact, there are even pre imprecatory psalms quoted in the New Testament. Wow. And, uh, yeah. and, it, and one of the things that I point out about Greg Boyd, and especially, is that uh, there's a lot of selectivity going on. Uh, as I was reading through his 1,400 plus page book, or you know, in two volumes. Uh, I would I would read and I'd say, well, what does he say about this text, or what does he say about that text? And routinely, I mean, dozens of times, nope, it's not in there, not in there, not in there, not in there, not in there. So it looks a lot more like uh, cherry picking to, you know, to some degree, or a lot of selectivity, or a lot of ignoring, at least, of texts that could actually undermine uh, Greg Boyd's case. Uh, so, for example, he, he mentions capital punishment in the Old Testament, right. and I go into a lot of detail in my forthcoming book on 
punishments in the Old Testament and see that there is a high degree of hyperbole that when, when you know, and I, I've modified a little bit from my Moral Monster book, uh, in which a lot of these judgments or, you know, these punishments, stoning, burning, and so forth, these are not expected to be literally carried out as was typical in the ancient Near East, uh, but it's to send kind of a warning signal uh, to people. Not that there wasn't capital punishment, but right. generally speaking, that was how it was represented uh, to the people. They understood that, oh, this that's bad. I need to stay away from that. But uh, but uh, so so there at least the potential for capital punishment. And so Matthew 15, Jesus brings up the commandment of God and the word of God, uh, talking about those who curse their father and mother uh, being put to death. That was potentially capital uh, capital offense, although 15 out of 16 punishments could be commuted to payment. But mm -hmm. Jesus mentions this as being this, this punishment, being put to death, as being what God had commanded. Greg Boyd says, well, maybe he's just being ironic there, but he could not have said that. Well, but read elsewhere. Read, uh, read uh, Acts 23. Uh, 323, where Peter is talking about the prophet who's going to be sent to Israel, uh, and that who, whoever doesn't listen to him will be cut off or destroyed. Well, Greg mm. Boyd uh, lists, you know, that's th th Acts 323, and he, in, in the index, he's got Acts 320, Acts 321, Acts 322, no, Acts 323. Uh, mm. Also, in Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about judgments, you know, you know Hebrews 10 and the you know, presence of two or three witnesses, you know, that somebody could be put to death. And then it's talking about how much greater will the judgment be for those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Greg Boyd ignores that mention of, again, capital punishment, uh, two or three witnesses. Uh, that was so. So, again, those are the sorts of things that are being ignored because it doesn't fit into this uh, arrangement of, oh, that's the textual God. Uh, that can't be the actual God. But the author of Hebrews is making very clear, no, this is the uh, the actual God. Although sometimes you'd think, well, Greg Boyd would say, well, yeah, this that's the Apostle Paul speaking authoritatively in Scripture. But he quotes Paul, uh, you know, he even gets on Paul's uh, case saying, well, Paul is actually not getting it right here. Uh, when right. Paul, Paul, for example, is saying that God is going to avenge Though you know the the Thessalonians, uh, you know, for, uh, against those who have uh, been engaged in violence against them, and he says, "Well, that's Paul's either you know or the Corinthians, you know, you know, Paul appealing to the Corinthians, the Thessalonians' bloodlust, uh, you know, this kind of thirst for vengeance and so forth." So he's he's dismissing Paul and saying that's not the spirit of Christ. This desire for vengeance it's actually not vengeance it's simply justice that god right. give to people according to what they have done that's a basic principle that uh, that that we we see in, throughout the scriptures so so those are a few examples of what yeah. i'm going for uh you know and challenge pushing back on those critics from within who are misrepresenting the continuity between the testaments and are creating a a chasm between the old and new testaments for what they call the actual God and the textual God. This is so interesting, the idea of there being this chasm like between this textual God and the actual God, and somehow they figured out what that 
actual who the actual god is so much so that you highlight and i didn't know this that they would even suggest that moses could have been under demonic influence or that paul was wrong or that paul said wrong or or that jesus was recorded as being wrong and this just moves now at the institution i serve we use the term that we we describe the scriptures as inerrant they're mm-hmm. without air they are not wrong in what mm-hmm. they're affirming and right. so like it's just similar to chicago's statement that mm-hmm. i mean many evangelicals have signed on to it's like that's the the spirit of uh, like of the institution i serve and, and maybe somebody is not as comfortable with that language because they associate it with like a a strange view of creation or something like that but nevertheless like the authority of scripture even just for somebody who would be on that side uh, it seems to erode pretty quickly. And the same time, like I see this, and you you may you call this like a a neo-Marcionism. And I'm and like the, this is this is kind of like the place where this comes to be is when do we get to a place where this is actually dealing with something that could be a form of heresy? I that that's my I mean general question. I, I know I use that cautiously, but I think it's that significant. I mean, I know Greg Boyd and, you know, I, I have interacted with him on these things and, and, you know, I, I, we want to be careful about, uh, uh, you know, church discipline or heresy or something like that. But I do see that there are some uh, slippery slopes here, uh, that there are some uh, problematic tendencies. Uh, There have been some uh, writers who are commenting on this unhitching uh, yep. And this uh, radical, creating these radical dichotomies uh, between the textual God and the actual God, the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, uh, is actually, you know, you know, some people have said this is anti-Semitic even, you know, that they've used mm-hmm. that kind of language wow. uh, where, where, you know, and, and I think, well, it's, you know, maybe uh, there's not obviously not the intention of, uh, of you know, despising or hating Jews. But but what it does is it rips out of this ancient Jewish context in which God spoke, uh, where these laws are in place and they are attributed to to God, and to simply extricate them, to remove them, uh, or to say at least, you know, and again, they're not saying. Well, I mean, at least Greg Boy isn't saying these aren't scripture any longer. Right, I mean, right, th- right. there's Eric Seibert does, however, say that that can't be inspired scripture, and so he basically says that scripture is generally inspired, but but not every portion of the the Old Testament, for example, would be inspired. So you will see that sort of a thing coming out, which is of course problematic. And but but I do see that there are some some concerns here that you know and I've talked to some scholars who see this as what Greg Boyd is doing as kind of a theological mischief uh, that could you know I talked to some some Old Testament scholar who uh, has offered critiques of of Greg Boyd and and he says I, I see this as misleading a lot of people and that they are going to have a flattened view of the Old, Old Testament portrayal of God sure. because of this kind of tidy dichotomy between the actual God and the textual God, and it actually isn't accurate. And uh-huh. rather than doing the, and I'm not saying that Greg Boyd hasn't yeah, wrestled course, with yeah. these things, of course I acknowledge that and to give him credit for struggling, wrestling with these things as we all are. Yes. But uh, but I think that some of the directions in which uh, this can go, 
uh, are are problematic. And people, of course, take it the next step and I think undermine uh, a clear, a, a more nuanced understanding, a more textured understanding of, say, who Jesus is, uh, his severity, that when we come to Jesus, it's not as though uh, it's all uh, quote, right. love and kindness. Uh, we see Jesus, you know, here, Jude 5, for example, yes. uh, where you have, it says Jesus, our best manuscripts say Jesus, after he had delivered the Israelites from Egypt, destroyed those who yes. did not believe. That's Jesus. Uh, there's severity to Jesus. Jesus is, you know, we're talking about the wrath of the lamb here. Uh, we see Jesus in Romans, Revelation chapter two, where there's this false prophetess Jezebel. Uh, and Jesus in the red letters is saying this, that he is going to cast Jezebel on a bed of sickness and uh, give her time to repent, but she refuses. Uh, and he says that he is going to strike dead her followers. Mm. Again, very severe language that is here. Uh, that uh, So as we look at this, we see that there is more to Jesus than just merely, Father, forgive them that don't know what they're doing. Clearly, mm. that is the heart of God, to love, to forgive, to show mercy. God would desire rather to show mercy than to show judgment. But if people refuse to repent, if people continue to uh, dehumanize and uh, act violently toward one another, then God says, that's it. And he acts mm. with severity and judgment. Uh, so you see that there is that severity. The you know the those who are uh, being judged in the Book of Revelation, they're calling on the rocks to fall upon them, uh, so that they don't have to face the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, that sounds pretty fearsome. Uh, that uh, that this is something that is not uh, you know mild and simply. And, and so I'm saying that we need more than just simply that sliver of Jesus' right. ministry, or, you know, his obviously very important father, forgive them that they're, they're doing God being in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Uh, but we also see severity, Jesus calling uh, his uh, his opponents uh, sons of the devil, uh, right. that, uh, that uh, you know, the apostle Paul talks about those who are part of the circumcision, and he says, you know, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be condemned. So there is that that language of, of curse, of judgment that still carries over precisely because people are being led astray, people being led into error. And so this is something that's pernicious. And so Paul is calling, uh, calling it what it is and using very strong language in doing so. Yes, absolutely. And I, I was interested you brought Jude 5. I've just released a study, a six-week small group study on the book of Jude, believe it or not. And it's, well, the reason I found Jude to be so interesting is because it begins with this context. I, had, I wanted to write to you about the salvation we share, but I was compelled to call you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Like we, we recognize that first. But the context of what is happening broadly is this group of people have come in and are pulling people away. So Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, compares all these the possibility of these people falling away to the Israelites in, in the wilderness who died and were judged, uh, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels in Genesis 6, and the list goes on and on of all kinds of people who are experiencing judgment. And the kind of like the big theme is be careful because you could also experience the same judgment. So the, the simple answer of like a, a law and grace 
isn't nuanced enough. And I really appreciate hearing that from you. you know, I'm interested too, one of the questions that come, I don't know if there's been a new atheist like a Richard Dawkins who has put this kind of out there more, but the idea of Elisha and the bears has been interesting and that you cover that. That is, a, is an interesting one to me. And, and to me, that's always... Well, maybe I should let you talk about well, let me, one comment ahead of this is kind of the philosophical understanding in general is that there is a moral application that we we decide when something is moral or not. Um, and what is the moral act? Like, how do we say it's wrong for God to do this? Well, it's kind of based upon a moral law in general that exists in the world. But I'm interested in what uh, how you tackle this, um, if you can give us just a glimpse, I may, maybe people need to go by the book, but I'm interested in how you confront this issue with Elisha. Yeah, well, let me say first that, you know, God, who by his very nature is good, uh, does not have any sort of moral duties. Uh, moral duties are basically God's commands to us, uh, that God's, you know, that our moral obligations, our duties are simply divine commands. Uh, and so God himself doesn't have to issue commands to himself. He doesn't have any moral obligations. God simply acts and he does what is good. Uh, so that's part of his nature. So we're not talking about a, a God who has no, uh, no, you know, goodness in his character, justice in his character, wisdom. Uh, you know, these commands are issued from a God who is all wise, all good, etc. Mm -hmm. And so we see it in that context rather than a mere arbitrariness or capriciousness uh, that you often see, say, in the portrayal of uh, God in Islam. Uh, so where, where Allah is sheer will and uh, mm -hmm. that there is no that there is no moral constraint uh, within within God. But when it comes to Elisha and the bears, of course, we see Elisha, who is has just been uh, given the mantle uh, of leadership in Israel as the successor to Elijah, who is, as we read in, in 2 Kings 1, a very hairy man. And by contrast, Elisha doesn't, he's not, not all that hairy. And so he's called uh, bald. And a lot of people are, you know, they look, you know, these little kids are just teasing this prophet and he just gets so upset with them and calls bears out uh, against them and 42 of them are mauled. Well, a few things to keep in mind. For one thing, we have Elisha who's just gone to Jericho. So, and of course he's uh, going on up, uh, you, know, you know, I mean, it's probably mocking, you know, go on up like your master Elijah did. So there's an allusion to that. Uh, but he is, he's gone, he's just gone to Jericho. And in Jericho, there is, you know, there are the, there are the um, waters that are, uh, are poisonous. And of course, Elisha goes and, uh, and makes the waters sweet again. And we see in the land, it says it becomes fruitful. Uh, and prior to that, it had been, been bereft. The land had been bereft of blessing. Now, you see that language at the end of Leviticus when the curses are mentioned. And in, in Leviticus uh, 26, you have mention of God's judgment. If you disobey the covenant, if you violate the covenant, then God is going to send, here it is, wild beasts. Interesting. And you will be bereft of your children. 
So the land is bereft. Elisha goes to Jericho and it becomes fruitful. He goes to Bethel, which is a center of idolatry. And so rather than, been, rather than being welcomed and receiving blessing from this prophet of God, they mock him. And so what happens? Well, exactly what God promised in, in Leviticus 26, that there would be wild beasts sent to, uh, and then mothers would be bereft of their children. But who are these, uh, you know, these youths? Well, the same term is used of David just before he actually fights against Goliath. It's used of Solomon as a young man who becomes king. It's used of uh, Rehoboam's friends who, you know, after, of course, he becomes, you know, he's a Solomon's son, he becomes king. Uh, he's surrounding himself with his boyhood friends who are now adults, but uh, the term for these youth is basically referring to unmarried, you know, those, you know, these men who are unmarried, they don't have households of their own, so they're, they're single but adults. And so it, that, that same language is used in, in, in first and second, uh, you know, first and second kings, and that's just a way of portraying them. And, and it's in all likelihood, these are uh, in, in, in first king, second Kings two, these, these youths are not just affiliated with the royal house, but also with the priesthood. And so they see Elisha as someone who is coming to attack, to undermine, to challenge their own idolatry, which is again divorced from the, the covenant that God had made. And so, so he's challenging them and they don't want to receive the rebuke from Elisha. They are, are mocking him and so forth. So, so this is basically what God has promised. Uh, it's not little kids on a playground making fun of a bald guy. Uh, right. These are you know, young men who know better. Uh, and so they, are, they receive judgment for their hostility, their mockery of someone who is a, a genuine prophet of God. Okay. So again, this falls back in the idea that judgment isn't necessarily a bad thing. Justice isn't a bad, that bad thing mm -hmm. that it, it, I don't know if it, you might go this far. I'm not sure I would either, but some might suggest that this isn't necessarily even saying anything about the eternal destiny of those children. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, that's, that's a separate question. You think of you know, Ananias and Sapphira uh, in and Greg Boyd says, you know, about that judgment that, well, maybe it was just a heart attack that they had, that God didn't actually strike them dead, or it could have been something demonic, but it couldn't have been God bringing oh. judgment. Uh, so that's how he would interpret that. Uh, we'll, we can come back to that in, in a bit. But uh, okay. but uh, when it comes to that sort of judgment, yeah, we'd say that Ananias and Sphira, you know, they just got greedy. Uh, that they were, they have this plan, and there is a degree of demonization, set, you know, that Satan has filled his yeah. heart, and so he lies to the Holy Spirit and so on. So, so it's not a matter of this person not, you know, an Ananias and Sapphira not being genuinely saved, but is as an act of temporal judgment against them. Uh, you know, and I'll just I'll just play off of that. I do yeah, mention sure. in the book of Acts, for example, you know, Greg Boyd dismisses this as a as an, an act of judgment from God, and what he's saying that God simply withdraws His influence, and then other forces maybe 
you know, could be a heart attack, but could be demonic forces that are actually uh, bring about the death of, uh, of Ananias' fire up. Well, as you read throughout the book of Acts, you see that God's hand is involved in certain judgments. So yeah. uh, in Acts chapter 12, at the beginning, we see that the angel of the Lord delivers Peter from prison. But at the end of that same chapter, it is the angel of the Lord that strikes down Herod for exalting himself as a god, and so the worms uh, consume him and he dies. Similarly, in Acts uh, 13, we see that Paul, you know, he, you know, through the power of the Spirit, right. uh, the hand of the Lord, uh, comes upon Elymas, and he is struck blind. Well, it's that same hand of the Lord we read earlier in Acts 11, where it says, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So here's conversion. The hand of the Lord is involved in the conversion of people, but also in judgment against Elamas. So the angel of the Lord for good, for deliverance, but also for judgment against Herod. So that's the kind of pattern that you see. There is a, a behold then the kindness and severity of God, uh, Romans eleven twenty two. Try to hold these these ideas together, and and that is it leads me to the next one I wanted to talk about the imprecatory psalms and the, the whole idea of bashing babies against mm -hmm. the rocks, right? Like this, and this is why somebody like Richard Dawkins would say God is not just um, just, but He's being vindictive, right? Mm -hmm. This is right. going beyond right. just being immoral. Like they're wanting to seek out extra punishment. How is that we can understand the? these passages, I mean, th these are tough to, to work through, and often they come up when people are presenting their concerns or their objections to the Christian faith. Right. Well, there are several ways of actually understanding this text. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, the psalmist is simply speaking from the gut-wrenching anguish that he is experiencing, and so is it necessarily saying something that is theologically on target? He's simply expressing uh, what he is feeling and processing this before the Lord. And, and so that's a, a common understanding. And, and there are, you know, just even when uh, David is saying, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not as though that's something that he literally believes, but he certainly feels right, right. Expressing abandoned. Or, yeah. uh, or in the Psalms, the, the psalmists are saying, you know, why have you forsaken us? Why have you abandoned your covenant to your people? And so on. Well, again, these are just, it's reflecting the depths of anguish that the people are feeling. So, uh, so you allow for a little bit of you know, kind of a little bit of theological latitude here as they're expressing these deep emotions. Or uh, it could simply be expressing that they're calling on God to do according to you know, the principle of justice. Uh, that, it, for example, in Acts, sorry, in, in Isaiah 13, it talks about Babylon again, mm -hmm. uh, you know, doing this sort of a thing to uh, to children. Uh, and so the psalmist is saying, well, Lord, do the same thing to them uh, that they have done to us. You know, and again, that's what God frequently is doing, that those who uh, dig a pit for others fall into it themselves. This is a picture right. of 
divine justice or Haman who is making these gallows for Mordecai. Uh, he is himself is hanged on those gallows himself. So there is this proportionality, this justice that is meted out that God renders to everyone according to his deeds. Or, so there's a couple of options. Yeah, sure. Uh, we can also talk about the, you know, who are these children? Well, uh, the daughter of Babylon is referring to the royal house. It's not just some woman who's left of her children, but this is, we're talking about the the royal house, the palace, uh, and, and the perpetuation of the royal line. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, bring an end to mm. this tyrannical dynasty. Uh, these children who keep coming and uh, rising up as kings and tyrannizing and, uh, and, and devastating people. So bring an end to that line. Uh, or it could simply be the, the daughter of Babylon, the, the rulers, uh, and their, the children. Uh, other interpreters have seen these as the Babylonian soldiers uh, who are carrying out this, uh, this uh, brutal, uh, tyrannical work. Uh, so there could be, there are a number of different ways of, of looking at this. <clears throat> and so rather than uh, seeing it at, in the the worst case scenario, I mean, it is, it, it does obviously sound, uh, you know, sound harsh, but I, I think there's more going on than, uh, than this uh, being a, a literal uh, request here. Sure. It's very interesting. It's more than a literal request. So mm -hmm. the, the idea you highlighted there just a second ago, just the basic concept of justice. Mm -hmm. In our time of social justice, which, uh, you know, it was a term that I used for a while uh, until <laughs> until I started to see where it was going in other right. in other movements. Um, we might have lost the basic concept of what justice is, and I think you imply right. that there is like a uh, well that there is a something that's commiserate or, or, or equal in the 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 act that is wrong and then the punishment like right. the punishment fits the crime talk, talk to right. me what what is what is this kind of basic concept of justice maybe how do we misunderstand it right well this is another thing about greg boyd where he reads the sermon on the mount and he says that uh, jesus is actually repudiating mm. the law of moses when he says you have heard it said but i say to you yeah, and yeah. I'll, I'll come back to that law of proportionality in a minute. But what I want to highlight is that Greg Boyd is actually misreading this. You, you know, you look at chapter four in the temptations of Jesus, and Jesus is saying, quoting from the law of Moses, <laughs> yeah. it is written, yeah. it is written, it is written. He's not saying you've heard it said, he's saying it is written. And what Jesus is then doing in chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount is saying you have heard it said, and what he is doing is he is addressing a misinterpretation or a misapplication of Moses yeah, rather yeah. than rejecting or repudiating Moses. Right. Uh, he is very positive about Moses. You see Moses in Deuteronomy 34 when he when you know God is commending him as you know that that since Moses there's been no one like him who has spoken with God face to face like he has who's you know as a friend who yep. who has performed these uh, these signs and wonders and so forth so there is this uh, the the old testament doesn't give any basis for saying oh moses is 
uh, is not to be listened to. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 23, when he's rebuking the religious leaders, is saying uh, to the people, basically, they sit in the seat of Moses, right? But you know, don't do what they do, but do what they say. They're you know, quoting from the law of Moses. So, so, and of course, Moses, we read in Hebrews, and you know, that he was faithful in all of God's household, that he is not seen as someone who is doing, you know, commanding something that's demonic, uh, that he's commanding things that are uh, utterly opposed to the, the heart of God. Uh, no, this is this is not at all the portrayal, but yet that is the representation that someone like Greg Boyd is giving to us. That this that you know Moses is doing things demonic. In fact, if you wanted to do this actual God textual God thing, yeah, uh, sure. I still will come back to that proportionality. Like, thing. That's Hang really on a minute. Yeah. But uh, but keep in mind when after the golden calf incident, that Moses is actually pleading with God not to end it with Israel, but actually to uh, keep to his word so that you know people aren't going to say well, well look the you know god made a covenant with them and look what they did they uh, and god destroyed them and so forth and so moses is pleading he's interceding and we have to ask the question well is you know is moses really that violence prone uh you know someone who's giving us the textual god rather than the actual god no he's actually the way that god is being portrayed in contrast to Moses, Moses looks like the one who is reflecting the actual God, according to Greg Boyd. Uh, mm. So he's pleading and, and so <laughs> forth. He's not he's not violent and vindictive. And so right, you know, right. you're, you're going to get it. Uh, so there is this it's kind of interesting how all of this plays out when you apply some of those things that Greg Boyd is saying. But when it comes to Matthew, back to Matthew five, you know, there's that principle, what's called lex talionis, the law of retaliation uh or you know where it's a judicial principle an eye for an eye right, and a right. tooth for a tooth it's not something literal uh but it but it is something that jesus mentions uh taken from the law of moses and what it intends to do is saying if you do this then the same sort of thing should happen to you as a matter of justice it's a law of proportionality but Jesus was addressing a misrepresentation of that, that people were using this judicial law of proportionality to get vengeance, personal vengeance. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus is saying, this is not to be a, a basis for taking personal vengeance, uh, you know, that you are not to, uh, to take it out on someone else. Uh, so, so, so he's a, addressing a misuse of the law of Moses rather than repudiating it. And so rather, he wants to keep it in its judicial context rather than saying, yeah, you can, you, you, you're, you can use this for personal retaliation. And, and, G, and, and of course, Paul picks up on this in, in Romans 12, where he says, don't take vengeance, but yeah. leave room for the wrath of God. So when it comes to these personal relationships, don't take vengeance. And then he applies it to the state in chapter 13, where rather than taking your own vigilante justice vengeance, uh, leave room for the wrath of God. And that is the minister of the state who is mm. the one who right. you know, is an avenger. Same word, you know, that's used yeah, in, sure. in chapter 12. And also he is a, you know, he's a minister of wrath. Uh, against those who are acting disobediently. And so there is this proper place for official justice, 
not not taking it in your own hands, but actually leaving it in the hands of authorities who are who are who are placed in there to protect the innocent, to punish the guilty, and to preserve the peace. In fact, we see this played out beautifully uh, in in Acts twenty three when the apostle Paul, when his life is under threat. Uh, by the Jewish mob, rather than taking matters into his own hands, he appeals to the Roman centurion who then rescues him, brings him to safety. And so basically they're doing what they're supposed to do, namely protect the innocent civilians. And so even if force is necessary. Yes, interesting. So that gets back to this basic idea of how God applies justice and how justice is utilized in this context is so interesting you uh, let me, i want to ask you about the your section on women in a second but what if you were in a situation and how do you like when you just have a few minutes like and you you know somebody's not going to be able to hang in for a longer conversation right. and you you hear something that says like well i just can't i just can't worship a god that would do that what are some of the ways that we might be able to some things we can do in our conversation to help them see a different way of looking at God yeah. as not a vindictive yeah. bully. Yeah. Well, I mean, apart from saying, read this book, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, right. you know, listen I to mean, this podcast. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, there's, uh, I think that we can talk about certain things that are, you know, I, I talk a lot about hyperbole and exaggeration when it comes to say warfare right. in the old Testament, that uh, what we see taking place in the old Testament is, uh, is is very strongly hyperbolic or exaggerated. It's kind of like our modern uh, sports trash talk. Oh, we totally annihilated those guys. Yeah, you know, no one takes that literally. Uh, when it comes to even punishments in the Old Testament, as I said, there is that kind of exaggerated, uh, um, you know, stoning, burning, etc., for effect. Uh, even though in the ancient Near East, the presumption wasn't that these would be carried out literally. You do have a couple of sample cases in the Law of Moses, but generally speaking, you know, you don't have that sort of thing going on. So, so I'd emphasize that there's there's a lot more going on here in terms of the you know, the, the ancient Near Eastern context, the genres right. that we're speaking of. So there's exaggeration, there's hyperbole. Uh, there is often kind of a black and white language that it's using the language of extremes. Uh, and so we like to be more nuanced, but that was just how uh, the, that was carried out. Uh, we also read in the book of Deuteronomy that there's a lot of intensification of language, you know, utterly destroyed, leave alive, nothing right. but breathes. Uh, you know, earlier passages, like in the book of Exodus, in Exodus uh, 23 and 34, the same language is, is used, but it doesn't have that utterly destroy, leave alive, not that breathe, show no mercy. Deuteronomy intensifies things with kind of a rhetorical effect. Uh, and so I just give this as an example. In, uh, you know, in Numbers 21, where you have these two kings, uh, Sihon and Og, who yeah. are, rather than allowing the Israelites to come through right. uh, peacefully, they take up arms to fight against the Israelites. And so they were, you know, they were, you know, they, you know, they were, they were defeated is basically right. what, what you have going on. And it says the king, his sons, and his army. So you know, it's an all, all male fighting force here. Well, then you see, you read this in, this is recounted in, in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. Right. Well, it uses the sweeping language of man, woman, young and old. Even though there weren't any elderly people there, there were no women, right. there were no children there, but it, it throws that sweeping language in for effect. So that's what's called a merism uh, that, that uses that language of totality, covering you know the young and old, man and woman, et cetera. And it's 
And so that's what we see going on there, that there's this intensification of language. So I, I will often use that kind of clarification to, to highlight yeah, some of those helpful. things. And also giving a little bit of context when it comes to, say, servitude in, in ancient Israel, that people say, oh, you can get, to, you can acquire these foreign, foreign servants and so forth. And the suggestion is, oh, you can abuse them, you do whatever you want with them. Well, no, you see repeatedly, 36 times in the Law of Moses, you were once aliens in the land of Egypt. Uh, right. That there's a reminder too, because you were it, so mistreated, remember what that was like. And so don't mistreat those who are the most vulnerable in your own in your own setting, uh, the, the orphan, the widow, the alien, uh, that you are to look out for them. Uh, so rather than there being some sort of a pretext for abuse or dehumanization, uh, actually, no, you are to show a concern for those who could be taken advantage of, just like you, uh, you know, just remember that you once were slaves in the land of Egypt. And, uh, and so don't mistreat someone who is in your land, uh, who could yeah. be taken advantage of. Yeah, anyway, those are a few things. That I yeah, that's great. I think those, those are really helpful, short little pieces you could put out. It reminds me of this idea of like the exaggerated language that's often used. Um, for instance, like I mentioned, I've been working on Jude all lot lately. And I was reminded that they, they tell the story of um, Jude alludes to Korah being one who led people away. And you think about the story of Korah, where he challenges Moses's authority. And then they say, like, well, we got, uh, Moses says, well, God will have to judge between two of us. And then the uh, earth opens up and swallows Korah and his whole family. Well, uh, we then see if, if Korah's whole family and everybody who went with him went away, uh, what about all the songs of the Korites in, in, the, the, in the Psalms? God is our refuge. God is our strength. Never present help in times of trouble. And, and even in that Psalm, it says, um, though the earth give way, you know, like the, the Korites experience that. But yet the, there's obviously exaggerated language because these people keep coming back into play. But yet judgment is still applied. So, okay. So, what, what, one more. I, I don't want to give too much away, but I am interested in the way you talk. You, you mentioned, and this is one section that I think is interesting about women and servants in Israelite society. And there's challenges there that even like the matter of polygamy that comes up. And here I am asking you towards the end of our interview to address this concern of polygamy, which as which could use you know several chapters to uncover. But is this a way that God is vindictive towards towards women? There, of course, is a fundamental equality that is assumed within Israel mm. that, uh, you know, you're two, for example, you know, man, woman made in God's image. There's this broader vision of the Israelites uh, that uh, this fundamental sexual equality uh, that is taken for granted and it permeates the pages of the Old Testament. Uh, so when you have in Deuteronomy, sorry, and well, Deuteronomy as well, but also Exodus 20, you know, honor your father and your mother. It's not honor your father in a piece of furniture or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, there is yeah, this sure. equality or Proverbs talking about uh, the son to exhorting him to listen to his father and to pay attention to his mother. Uh, that both of these are sources of wisdom and ought to be respected and have, you know, that you show a high regard for them and their experience, their wisdom and so forth. Uh, so when it comes to the issue of polygamy, there is there are two views on this, and I mentioned this in the forthcoming book, uh, that some evangelical scholars, and I'd say most of them, would accept that polygamy was tolerated, but not 
uh, at all idealized. In fact, polygamy, right. if you look at all the instances of polygamy, uh, it turns out to be a very poor advertising campaign promoting polygamy. Uh, uh -huh. You see strife, you see uh, jealousy, you see uh, all sorts of trouble that comes right. to households because of polygamy. And, you know, but, but I think that you, you also have mention of situation, like I'd say a key text is Leviticus 18.18, where we actually shift from, uh, you know, prohibited uh, re sexual relations with those who are relatives, in-laws, uh, father, mother, and so forth, uh, to avoid those. And then Leviticus 18.18, the text actually shifts. You can actually, read as you read the Hebrew, you can see that the language shifts, the structure shifts, and now it's actually talking about uh, sexual relationships that are outside of that, uh, the, you know, the, the kinship uh, bonds. And so you know, there's mention of a rival wife, if, you know, that, a, that uh, a man should not take a rival wife. And some people say, well, that's just a sister. Uh, but no, you have in, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, there is a rival wife. You have Elkanah, who has two wives, one who is a rival, uh, you know, to Hannah, um, you know, Penina. And, uh, and again, it leads, you, you see that kind of troublesome relationship when you do have that polygamy or bigamy uh, in, in, in 1 Samuel. But uh, some people say, well, look, David is being told by God in, in 2 Samuel 12 that, uh, that he, you know, God gave him his master's, you know, you know palace, gave him right, his right. servants, gave him his wives and, and so forth. And if that had been too little, God could have given him more of those sorts of things. Well, some people say, well, look, that was you know, just kind of polygamy. This is a gift from God. Mm. And so, well, if you look more closely, you have to be careful about this. I mean, it was a common to have a household transferred from one king to another. That was just a natural shift. And so you just kind of took on who was in the palace and you're, they were just under your care. But if you want to push this, you, you do raise a few problems. And, and one, for example, is that if Saul... Uh, Saul's wives are all given to David for, say, sexual relations. Well, then you run into the Levitical problem of incest uh, because David's mother in law, Ahinoam, uh, was part of that, would have been part of that entourage. Uh, so, so is, is God saying, I've given you Saul's wife, your mother-in-law, as, <laughs> as one of those? Or uh, when it comes to giving, uh, God says, and I'm going to give you or I'm going to give your your opponent Absalom, uh, your you know your wives, those who are in your in, in your household, the the concubines. I'm going to give them to uh, to your son. Well, is this also another indication that God is giving God is yeah, giving mother. in an approving way this sort of thing? So is God therefore endorsing adultery? Right. Of course not. So so I think we have to qualify some things here rather than simply saying, oh, yeah, look, polygamy was a you know, was was blessed by God. God was giving him these wives. Uh, you know, there are some problems. So if you're going to go that route, uh, there are some some things that you've got to got to come to terms with. Uh, I think a more consistent way of going about it is to see Leviticus 18, 18 as disapproving of right. this uh, of, of a polygamous relationship. And uh, that God, but that, you know, God, you know, there is a toleration of it and, and, you know, you don't have any sort of punitive measures taken against those who are, 
in in polygamous relationships that is you know, was uh, was more part of the culture uh and so so anyway but that's that's just something that i talk about but i i recognize that there are other scholars who say that it was uh tolerated but not uh not approved by god not not recommended by god right. and so even when it says that god gave these uh to uh to to david it's not as though it's in some sort of approving way but rather you know i could you know i've given you this household and i could have given you a lot more of these sorts of things so it's not highlighting the wise in particular but just more of these types of things I, I gave you all sorts of uh things and i could have given you a lot more and and so keeping it more at a general thing i think that's the safest way to go about it and say something like uh, david lamb who does see polygamy as uh, something that's not prohibited by the law of moses but tolerated he himself takes the view that you know god is not uh saying i literally gave you these wives as something that i approve of uh so so again there is that qualification that we could add as well wow uh, paul i am just amazed i'm sure you get this a lot but the encyclopedic way i did not send you any questions ahead of time and you are pulling all this up i am, I am just amazed at your ability to bring this information to mind again folks this book is called is god a vindictive bully reconciled portrayals of god in the Old and New Testaments. And it's coming out with Baker. It comes out in the middle of October, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, October 18th on Amazon. Yeah. So it, check this book out. We really are thankful, Paul, that God has given you this ability to be able to bring this information to bear and to really think through them. This, and of course, and is God a moral monster? Um, and you mentioned a th a, another book too that I didn't really realize was a part of this series. What was that? Right. Yeah. Uh, did God really command genocide? Gotcha. Yes. Um, so you recommend books to everybody. Yeah. This is this. And you said you have another thing come out too on just war. Um, right. Yeah, I did. Yeah. It just came out with InterVarsity. It's called uh, War, Peace, and Violence for Christian Views. So there are four okay. uh, contributors to this and they spar back and forth you know, in a, in a loving Christianly way, uh, you know, with each other. And so I think it's a very dynamic, engaging book. I think it uh, addresses a lot of important issues. I think it nuances the discussion. I think there's a lot of texture to the discussion. And so it's not as though it's, there are lots of easy answers on one side, and then uh, it's all, uh, all, all challenges for everybody else. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of pushback and, and dynamism and tension that uh, that that come you know, that will come out in, in as these different positions are being portrayed. So so have a look and tell me what you yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah. What are the uh, without getting into details? What the, what are the four views? The names of the four views. Right. There are two kind of traditional views at either ends of the spectrum. One is of course just war. The other is pacifism. Uh, then there is in the middle uh, there is a view that is called Christian realism. Yes, which uh, we could call it kind of a dirty hands, more of a more pragmatic view that wars just need to be fought. It's and you can perhaps bring guilt upon yourself. The just war, the just warrior would say, no, if you're engaging in a just cause, there is no guilt that actually uh, attends the the action uh, of warfare. Uh, and then there is another position, and I enlisted uh, one contributor who had written a book with InterVarsity uh, Press uh, called The Gods of War, uh, Mike Pierce. And he uh, comes from a more Anabaptistic perspective as a church historian. Okay. Uh, but he says that both the just war and the pacifistic positions 
are untenable, that they cannot be consistently maintained. And so basically, if you, uh, you know, they, they lead to all sorts of uh, conclusions that are problematic uh, for the just warrior, that there's the problem of uh, maybe getting into some, some, you know, some fighting that may be morally compromising, or you may be taking your cues from someone who's in charge, who insists that you follow orders, and it may lead to a conflict of conscience. Or on the other hand, if you're a pacifist, the problem is there are people you could defend. You have the power to defend, but you don't act on their behalf. And so this is also deeply problematic. So he says basically a plague on both your houses. But (laughs) if you you have to fight, uh, make sure that you can win and do so with as little damage as possible. Interesting. Wow. I'm glad to hear about that book. Well, my last question is this. Uh, Paul, the name of my podcast is More to the Story. So outside of these books and your scholarly writing and your contributions to the church and helping us think, is there more to the story of Paul Copan than is normally told? Yeah, I mean, I guess there is. I mean, you, I, I love, I love, I love birding. I just got this. Oh, um, interesting. Uh, uh, Prophetary warbler here. Uh, okay. My, my, one of my daughters gave to me for my birthday on this past weekend, and the you know, so I love birding. I always travel with my uh, binoculars or a monocular okay. and camera, and so wherever I travel, I always try to take time aside for for birding. And uh, have my son calls I, himself a bird nerd. My, my bird son nerd. Okay, bird gotcha. Nerd. Okay, very good. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was inspired by John Stott, who was a who was an oh. avid birder. Uh, he wrote a book called "The Birds Are Teachers," and he took photos of all of the birds that are in that book uh, himself. So, uh, but also, you know, I, my wife and I, we've been happily married all of these years, and we have six kids. Uh, okay. We love to travel together. So now that our kids are uh, are out of the house, we do a lot more traveling together, which is really nice. I mean, we would travel together as a family. We'd have these epic road trips. Uh, but now my wife is able to travel with me. And so it's a, it's a grand adventure being with her wherever we go. And so those are a few fun things. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Thanks for, well, what's the one bird that you haven't seen that you want to see that you're, you're hoping you're going to find at some point? Oh, wow. Um, well, I, I, I guess, I mean, I, I have not seen the, uh, you know, uh, prothonotary uh, warbler, uh, be okay. nice. but uh, but you know I guess uh, you know uh, snowy owl haven't seen oh, okay. uh, yet. I um, uh, would love to see some penguins. Have not seen those except in a zoo, but would love to see them out in you know say uh, you know you know the tip of South South America or something like that. But um, yeah, so there are a few. Yeah, there are a lot, and of course, lots of lots of fun birds. I mean, I've been to you know, Colombia, South America a few yeah. times, and have enjoyed the variety of birds there, the the colors and so forth. I mean, over two hundred species of hummingbirds uh, in Colombia itself, oh. um, and um, you know, so so I'll be actually be speaking in Curacao next weekend. Uh, and you know, one of you know, north of Venezuela, one of the islands there. So hopefully, do a little birding while I'm there. They have a very, you know, few varieties of Orioles that I'd like to see. So anyway, oh, there you great. have it. I love it. Well, thanks so much for your your work and for the way that you apply the gifts God's given you for the good of the church. And uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate the work that you've done. That's the way it's helped me. So thanks, Paul, for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. God bless you. Ed.